Well, good morning, Church at the Red Door. Are you ready for this? We are going to press on through the Gospel of Luke. Um, Anyway, it was a little bit of a challenging week based on a couple things that happened with our property and some other things that we will keep you well abreast of, but got just pushed back another couple of weeks. So anyway, uh, but you know what? That's just the vicissitudes of life. Things just kind of come and they change and they evolve and you know, one of the things we're going to be talking about this morning are uh, it's, it's God doing, always doing new things. And so I'm excited about this morning and uh, I hope it penetrates your heart. As some of you, let me just be clear, some of you need this message. I need this message. Uh, as I was thinking through this, I become over time, I become, we all become set in our ways or we have certain things that we want to see or Christianity looks like this. Uh, following Jesus always looks like this. And in some ways that's right. But in some ways that's not always the case. God is always refreshingly new. You know, when we get into this this morning, we're going through again, the gospel of Luke and uh, the Gospel of Luke is clearly one of the most comprehensive of the three synoptic Gospels. It's an, it's an amazing account of Jesus' life. And we're actually going to be looking at maybe the first parable, certainly one of the first few parables that Jesus ever told, which in my view sets a foundation for a, a view of all the parables, not unlike the sower went out to sow. This kind of rises to that level. So I'm praying that this will uh, penetrate not only your heart, but your mind and get us in a position where we can always receive something fresh and new and vibrant and dynamic from the creator of the universe. All right, you ready to go? Okay, so we're in uh, Luke chapter five. We're gonna complete uh, chapter five this week, verses 27 through 39. Let me read it for you. Uh, This is now gonna be the call of uh, Levi or Matthew as we would know him better. Uh, Verse 27, he says, after that he, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. So he was right doing what he always did. It was kind of a duplicitous character possibly. He was certainly hated by uh, his fellow Jewish comrades. I mean, uh, they just couldn't imagine that he would be that complicit with the Romans and he was probably stealing from his own people. He was, he was the ultimate Benedict Arnold. At, at least that was the perspective on these tax collectors. So you can imagine that Jesus having anything to do with this guy was always gonna cause controversy. And even our message this morning is ripe for controversy, ripe for misunderstanding. So I'm praying that the Lord will speak individually to each one of us wherever we are and speak to us in a profound way. I know it has me over the course of this last week. And Jesus said to him, having found him in the tax collector's booth, follow me, if you can imagine. And and I love this. It just says that Matthew left everything behind, got up and began to follow him. I'm, I'm always amazed at that. It was similar things happened with the, some of the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And here again, Matthew, he's doing what he's doing. He's probably very profitable, probably has a great career future. I'm sure he has future aspirations and tucking some money away. And maybe he's thinking about retirement. Who knows? And he just drops it all and he follows him. Now, one of the first things I want to speak to you about this morning is that, that it, you know, following Jesus is all-encompassing. Uh, well, of course, we have to leave everything and follow him. But the question is, uh, can you get in trouble? Is there valor in just following, dropping everything for anybody that comes along? And clearly, the answer to that is no. I mean, we've had despotic regimes through the centuries that... You know, they were promising glorious things and a a return to glory and all these kind of things. And and what happens? Well, inevitably, some of these turn into despicable regimes, dark, diabolical regimes. And people dropped everything and they followed a a course of political action. And that can happen very easily. Uh, We know of all the cultic activities that's happened even in our lifetimes, uh, many of our lifetimes. Jim Jones and people, you know, drank the proverbial Kool-Aid, moved down to South America. They followed. They literally followed, dropped everything, turned everything over. And is there, is there some place of great, you know, like I said, valor? Is there something that's uh, commendable by dropping everything? Well, yes. And also, no, I mean, we have to be cautious 
But we have to be desirous to find someone who will speak to us the truth and we can invest in them. The problem is, and I don't care who you are, it's difficult to find that in any man. We are mixed bags. Here at Church at the Red Door, I hope you're not just blindly following the leadership at Church at the Red Door. We always want to have that Berean attitude in Acts chapter 17 where they studied to see if these things were so. I'm certainly not above scrutiny at all. Never want to be. And, uh, and, and, and that's the case for all of our leadership here at Church at the Red Door. We, want, we are subject to the word. But again, it was Jesus here, and Matthew made a commendable decision in dropping everything immediately and following him. Evidently, he had enough faith, enough uh, belief, enough, um, enough understanding of who Jesus was to be able to make such a, a valiant decision. You know, I've thought through the years, and I, many of you know my background as a golf professional, as a PGA of America golf professional, and I got to play, you know, a few PGA Tour events, European Tour events through the years, maybe 20 or 25 through the years. So I had a taste of the other side, but never was one of them. But all the guys are always dealing with swing coaches. And you hear about, you know, Tiger Woods started with kind of Butch Harmon. Well, actually started with his childhood coach. And then he kind of went to Butch Harmon and he evolved over and went to Hank Haney for a period of time. And then Sean Foley and then and, and then others now. And then he's kind of back to kind of doing his own thing. And so, you know, a swing coach in some senses is like, look, you need to follow me. I'm going to give you a system of understanding about your golf swing. We're going to apply certain things and. And you end up having to put a lot of trust in these people. And let me tell you something. Through the years, people just kind of blindly followed, and, and maybe not even so blindly, but they, they felt compelled that this is the right thing for me. And it cost them a year or two years or five years or maybe even ultimately their career in following advice that may just not have fit them. So we have all kinds of issues in following people, kind of trying to apply their the totality of their system of thought either to our golf swing or to our political life or to, in this case, the wholeness of our life as it related to Matthew. So again, we should be desirous to follow some someone and the only person that I've ever found that I can ultimately follow without any question 100% of the time is Jesus. And that's what, that's what we are as Christians. We are followers of Jesus. Of course, he's the ultimate shepherd. They're under shepherds, but even under shepherds, we don't follow blindly. We're always subjecting ourselves to the word and to him. So I find that fascinating uh, as we look here at Matthew and his just complete buy-in. And again, was this, was this an intelligent decision? Was this an informed decision? I can't really speak to it. I just know that he was a good decision. And again, I can always say, look, if you push all your chips in and follow Jesus, you're going to be in great company for many of the wisest men and women that have ever lived as they either look forward to the cross or they look back to the cross as well. So let's go on to verse 29 here. Levi, then and we get this next scene and we see this picture. He gave a big reception for Jesus in his house and there was a great crowd. Now notice of tax collectors and other people who were reclined in the table with them. And we can only imagine who these other people might have been. Some pretty, you know, strange backgrounds. And why would Jesus be hanging out with these people? And of course, then the Pharisees and then their scribes, verse 30, come onto the scene and they began again to grumble at his disciples saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And we're going to look at this this morning. That was actually a pretty good question. I mean, they, at this point, there has not been a transfer to a new covenant. We're going to talk a little bit about that. There was not a new thing yet. And they had been given the prescription through the Mosaic law. And I'm going to read some of these. You may not have ever really studied this, but you need to understand why such a vitriolic reaction to Jesus during this time as he was beginning to hang out with these people with a very sordid background. No doubt there were adulterers and certainly there were tax collectors, so there were cheaters. There were people who were leading people astray and idolaters and everything else. And I mean, who else would Matthew have been hanging out with? He's not going to be hanging out with the, the religious elite by any case. So we can imagine who would have been there. And again, this Lucian account just says, and other people, tax collectors and other people. These other people, uh, probably pretty sordid backgrounds. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We get insight into what Jesus is doing. Yes, he's hanging out with them, but always with a purpose to call them to a change of heart and mind and to begin to follow him because in following him, they would find his father. No one comes unto the father except through me, as Jesus would later describe, as we will get to eventually in John chapter 14. Well, then it goes on from there in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John often fast and offer prayers and the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours, yours, they're eating and they're drinking. They're not doing anything. They are not paying attention to protocol here. And Jesus said to them, you cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? So now he's referencing to them, giving a new metaphor. I'm the bridegroom. And they are now, what he's saying, whether it's, you know, just directly, he's not directly saying it, but he's beginning to build a case for this is going to be the bride. Uh, this, these are going to be the people who are going to compose what will one day be called the called out people, the ecclesia, what we would now call the church. These are, these are people who are coming in. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sick. But days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Those are the days that we are in today. And that's why many of us will fast periodically or fast trying to, because the bridegroom is not with us. So he makes this declaration that, in fact, he's the bridegroom. And then by, as that we can deduce from that, we must then be the bride. Who? Well, some of these characters, tax collectors and other people golf pros and, and whatever. I mean, you know, just unbelievable. Other people. I mean, it just shouldn't be other people. They were fairly rigid in their ways. And he was then telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will tear both the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So imagine you have a, you have this, they didn't have Marshalls and TJ Maxx or Amazon where you could just order a shirt for $2 or something and have it there in 24 hours. I mean, they, this was a, these are precious commodities. So he would give this picture of this cloak or this, you know, uh, that they may be wearing and it would wear a hole in it. And then you wouldn't take a, it wouldn't take a new piece of cloth and put it on and then it gets wet. It's going to rip the, it's going to rip it apart. So you would take something uh, different than that. You would take an old uh, piece of uh, cloth to put over that. And then he goes on and he says, and no one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise the new wine will burst in the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins are all going to be ruined. But new wine must be put, now catch this, into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine wishes for new, for he says, well, the old is good enough. I'm just telling you right now, straight up front, I'd never want to be in a position where I say, well, the old's just good enough. This is, the way how, this is how we've always done church. This is how we've always done things. And you get used to something. You get used to, we, we are creatures of habit. We like to come in and see everything the same. If you notice, even Church of the Red Door, it's just a habit. People sit in the same seats every week, or used to before we had COVID. They'd come in, sit in the kind of the same thing, and we like, we're, our worship does this, and it lasts this long, and then we have this, and then, you know, we just, we're uncomfortable with newness, and yet God is always a God of freshness. And that's, uh, Jesus then tells this parable, two parables actually here, about the cloth and then about the wineskins. Now you've got to understand just a little bit about wineskins. These were goat skins that they would use during this time. And then they would sew the edges together and then they would pour the wine in there. And what Jesus is saying essentially is that over time, obviously these these little containers made of goat skin, these wineskins would become a little bit rigid over time. And then if you poured new wine and it would go in, do a little more fermentation, expand, it would explode. This old, old rigid wineskin. And so you'd have to use new wineskins. And Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom is going to be like. And this is what is happening right now. Of course, I'm going to be hanging out with different people because there is a new thing about to happen. And we would call this then the new covenant. And there's going to be a whole new operation of the kingdom of God and its manifestation, not just to the nation of Israel, but now by extension in the entire world. 
And so there's this beautiful, beautiful picture of something new is coming down the pike here. And then Jesus uses this parable. So two things essentially are now happening. There are two primary accusations that are being leveled at Jesus. And the first accusation is that you're hanging out with the wrong people. Jesus, you're hanging out with the spiritual dirty. Now, by implication, what they're saying is that if you're hanging out with them, then you too must be dirty. You must have some ulterior motive. Uh, you're not one of us. You're excluded. You're out. You're hanging out with the wrong people. We clearly, the law tells us we don't do this. In fact, we stone pe these people. We, we kill these people. Our law tells us to kill these people. And here you are having dinner with them. Now, again, a quick clarification here. Jesus had many disciples during this time, as we've seen, we will see in John chapter six, there were many who were dis, dis, being disciples. Now, a disciple is simply a learner. There is a distinction to be made between who he will begin to choose to follow him, and they will then become the twelve apostles, and and that was very significant for Israel because there were there were twelve tribes. But the apostles are more than just learners. The apostles then become sent ones or messengers. Uh, they would be sent, they would be giving the message that Jesus had entrusted with them over this three, three and a half years of time with them. And then they would be tasked to take it to the ends of the world. So there were many disciples. So sometimes when we read disciples, we think immediately of the 12 apostles. But just remember, there were many learners. Some would hang in there for a while and they go, I just can't take this anymore. And they'd take off and, and others were come. So they, he had many disciples, but not all of them were apostles, clearly. Just an important sidebar note there. So number one accusation, you're hanging out with the wrong people, Jesus. You're hanging out with the spiritual dirty laundry here. You can't do that. Uh, you must be, again, you must be dirty yourself if you're hanging out with these people. And then their second accusation was not only that, but you're choosing the wrong people. Your inner posse, your core people, the people that you're choosing to really become your, you know, next level disciples. Well, you're, you know, you're choosing the wrong people to partner with. And these were the two accusations that were leveled against Jesus in this passage. Now, Jesus has two very fascinating responses. Number one, he says, well, you're both right and wrong. You are right. I am hanging out with the spiritual dirty. I am hanging out with people that are a million miles away from my father and his holiness. But you're wrong in this sense. You're wrong in the sense that there are spiritual dirty and then there are spiritually clean. He, he was very clear about, well, you're all dirty. And he didn't say this specifically. I didn't come for what he said. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sick. But you've got to understand, Jesus could not have been more clear. If you'll hearken back to John chapter 2, when we were, uh, uh, we've done this study before in John chapter 2, he didn't entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. All men, scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders, Sadducees, zealots, Essenes, even the ones that the holy and righteous ones that had moved out into the desert, this Essene community, all of you are sick. That was Jesus' primary purpose for coming. Everybody's sick. Everybody. So you're right. I am hanging out with the dirty, but you're wrong in believing that they're dirty and that they're clean and that you're clean. You're all dirty. And I came for all of you, even the Pharisees. And then second, his response is very, very moving to me. Uh, this thing is this whole kingdom is going to look radically different, radically different than you had ever anticipated, you Pharisees and scribes, ever. And the kingdom of God that is coming, well, it's going to be a radically new thing. And we're going to talk a little bit about those new things. So first of all, I want to go back now and I want to look at what would have been coursing through the minds of these religious leaders as they were observing Jesus hanging out with dirty folks right? What, what would have been going through their mind? You need to understand. It's not just bad Pharisees, bad scribes, horrible people. They're always kind of cast as the villain in many of these. You got to understand they had good reason, good reason. They were well-trained in the Mosaic law. And of course, then they had built extra fences around these laws and they had come up with a lot of traditions that had nothing to do with the Mosaic law, but there were some very specific things. It wasn't just love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, there were some specific things that would have colored their view of what Jesus was doing that would have necessitated clearly a new thing. I'm going to say, give you a couple here, okay? Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, as I alluded to, some of these other people that would have been hanging out with Jesus, 
clearly some of them would have been adulterers. They would have been known. I mean, we get encounter, encounter after encounter in the, in the Gospels with Jesus being with people. Not only that, but also Gentiles who clearly were outside of the, uh, of the good guy group. Uh, and, and women of ill repute. We have, uh, in fact, a woman that was, gets caught in adultery that we know. We know Mary Magdalene had a lot of demonic activity. There would have been reason in their minds that she had all this demonic activity. Uh, many think that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. We don't, we don't know that at all. And there's no indication that she was, but she was demonically possessed. There were a lot of other people. But Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. I mean, this is what's going through their mind. And then they see Jesus hanging out with these adulterous people. Is he an adulterer? Is he married? I mean, what, what's going on here? I, you can clearly see that they, they would have, their angst would have been aroused in seeing Jesus do this. I mean, I have some sympathy for the Pharisees and their scribes. I really do. Leviticus 19, uh, verses 11 and 35. Catch this. You shall not steal or deal falsely or even lie to one another. Verse 35, you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. There were tax collectors here. You don't think that they stuffed their pockets a little bit, overtaxed and did... I mean, these were all people that were motivated more by money and greed than they were fidelity to their own their own kin, right? Their own people of their own nation against these Roman overlords. And so clearly this would have been going through the minds of the Pharisees. I mean, if even if you are off in your, your measurement, uh, you've got to be fair. This is what this is saying. You can't, you can't deal falsely with your fellow Jew. You can't do it. And he's hanging out with tax collectors. He's violating the law. Deuteronomy 17, just check this out. This is about idolatry in general. Clearly, these would have been idolaters all over the place. If a man or woman living among you uh, in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of his covenant, contrary to my command, has worshiped other gods, bowing down to them, to the sun, the moon, the stars, and the sky, and this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. And if it's true and has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, again, this is going through the minds of these Pharisees. Take the man or woman who's done this evil deed to your city gate and stone them to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. In the hands of the witnesses must be first in putting that person to death in the hands of the people. You must purge the evil from among you. So this whole conceptual matrix is in their mind. You have to purge the evil. We're trying to get rid of the tax collectors. We're trying to get rid of the adulterers. Not have dinner with them. Not enjoy a party with them. Can you, can you see how they would have been viewing this. And then I'm not going to go into the fullness of this, but go back and read chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. Again, this is Moses' recounting of the law before he would go up on Mount Nebo and then die before they crossed the land. So he's recounting the law here in Deuteronomy. There are many other places we could go here. And then they would have thought of Jesus as a dreamer, as someone who was misleading Israel. They would say that over and over. And so this would be directly applied to Jesus. And then by extension, those who were following him and certainly his inside group. These are, these are going to talk about false prophets and dreamers, enticers, seducers. And listen, just a little bit of the language. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, that's Jesus. He's giving signs and wonders. And the sign or, uh, or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods who have you not known and let us serve them. Don't listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. And the Lord your God is testing you. They must have felt tested by Jesus. Are they going to be, are they going to stay in a, a loving relationship with their father from their perspective? Here's someone clearly who's leading Israel astray in their minds. 
Verse four, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him and you shall keep his covenants, listen to his voice, serve him, cling to him. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall, again, purge the evil from among you. And it goes on in verse six, so those who are enticing you secretly, let us go serve other gods. And then verse 12, uh, 13, excuse me, some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of the city. And then basically you just wipe out the city. You, you've got to understand, this. the law was never given to the nations. The law more specifically was given to Israel until the seed should come. The purpose of the law was multifaceted, as we've looked at before, but the general purpose of the law was trying to keep Israel together as a nation until the seed would come. In other words, Galatians 3, until this new thing was going to happen. And then it was going to go global, and this messenger, this mighty prophet, you have to listen to him. Deuteronomy 18. If you don't listen to this prophet, you'll be cut off. Jesus was claiming to be the prophet, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the bread of life, the light of the world, right? All these things, the water, the living water. He was making this claim. And you can see, I hope you can see, and have maybe some compassion for the view that many of the religious leaders had toward Jesus, but they were missing something and they were missing something in a very profound way. So this next part in light of just, this is just a sampling of the law and it was harsh. You can see why they wanted to kill Jesus. It was harsh. Were they correct in their accusations? Well, I think I would say yes. I would say, but and I would say, and oh, by the way, <laughs> so yes, but no, but. When I was growing up, my, my dad always said, no, yeah, buts. In other words, he would ask us a question and uh, we would affirm, you know, did you pick up the leaves in the yard like I asked you to? Uh, maybe no, or maybe yes, or have you done? And we would maybe say, yeah, but did you do that? Did you, did you, did you violate what I asked you to do? Yes, but. He would say, no, yeah, buts, right? But in, in this case, this is a little bit of a yeah, but. And first of all, yes, well, Jesus was hanging with dirty people, as we alluded to. That's clear. Spiritually sick, dirty people. Yes, your accusations are accurate. But the bridegroom has arrived. And in describing himself as the bridegroom, he's beginning to drill into their psyche that something radically new is here, something powerful, a, a new covenant is going to be inaugurated and everybody's going to be included even the lowly, even the, even the tax collectors, and the prophets had seen this, even the adulterers. And we're gonna look at that in just one second. And oh, by the way, hey, by the way, everyone's sick and dirty, okay? So yes, but there's something new coming. And oh, by the way, you're all sick and dirty and I've come, I've come to die for all of you. And let me tell you something, some of you may be watching this right now and you may be, thinking, well, God could never love me, or I've just gone beyond the pale. I, I, I'm not a religious person. I've never been a religious person. And I, 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 you know, God must be very angry at me for the life that I've lived. Can I just tell you, it could not be more clear in the ministry of Jesus that he would be, if he came back here in the 21st century and you, for some reason, were in the Palm Springs area, if you might be watching online somewhere, and, and you came, maybe you came down for Coachella Fest, and it was just, a, it's a pretty wild parties that go on during Coachella Fest. You know, it's one of the largest music festivals, and it's just, just down the street from where I live, not very far. And there's a lot of wild behavior. You say, well, I, the only time I've ever been there is for a Coachella Fest or something. I, can I just tell you, Jesus might be at one of those parties. No, he wouldn't be getting drunk and sleeping around and all that clearly, but he would be there among those people, loving those people and calling them to change their mind about how they thought about life and reality and their relationship with their heavenly father. And he would then give them a, a way in which they could move into that kind of relationship. I want to go back. How did they know there was a new thing coming? Now, I've got to tell you, let me just be as clear as I can possibly be. I would struggle mightily with, with faith. Faith would be a difficult thing for me without Jeremiah 31. Because, okay, Jesus is the lamb, and yeah, and there are a lot of prophecies about Jesus. 
But who was he to say that he, he was this new covenant guy? He was, who is he to inaugurate something so radically new? And why wouldn't the prophets have seen it? Without Jeremiah 31, they would have seen the lamb for slaughter and they would have seen the sacrificial system being accomplished in him and they would have seen where he was born and many other prophecies and how he would die and all those kinds of things. But did any of the prophets see something radically new coming? And the answer to that clearly is yes. And we've looked at it many times at Church of the Red Door, but it bears reading. I read it all the time. Jeremiah 31 31 through 34. Listen again, this is about 600 years before the time of Jesus. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Think fresh, new, vibrant, exciting, new deal, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's not going to be like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand, that Deuteronomy time during the time of Moses to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, by the way, Although I was a husband of them, declares the Lord. So no, it's not going to be like the covenant I said, where I said, look, if somebody, an adulterer is found, kill them, stone them. Somebody's a dreamer. And so even if they show a sign or a wonder, you take him outside and you kill them. Someone with unjust measurements and all that, man, they, they are guilty of the law. He said, this is going to be a whole new thing. Jeremiah is seeing this again, 600 years before the time of Jesus. God is already saying, I'm going to make a new deal. I'm going to do something totally fresh, something totally new, something totally, well, totally unexpected by some of those who are adhering to this Mosaic law more strongly than anybody else, the Pharisees. Will they be, will they be too rigid? Will the wine that they've contained, will they have gone rigid and frigid and, and unbendable? where if I pour new wine into these vessels that it'll just break and the, everything will be spilled? That's why Jesus is telling this parable. Verse 33 says, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them and on their heart, and I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they won't teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. Now this is important from the least of them to the greatest of them. So this new deal is not just going to be reserved for the religious elite, for, the, for the, those who had nothing to do all day but study the tiny details of the law and then build traditions and walls. And they were full-time religious people, these Pharisees. And their scribes. No, it'll be from the least and the greatest. It's going to... This new thing is going to involve everybody and clearly even the Gentiles who were the least of the least. I mean, they were polytheists. They were a mess from the least of them. Now, this is more specifically speaking of Israel, but there are plenty of other places that talk about the entirety of the nations that we've looked at. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. And I'm not even going to remember their sin anymore. Yeah, they're dirty. But this new thing... It's going to involve everybody. Now, it doesn't give us specific ways to understand what that is going to look like. Is it Jesus? Well, it doesn't say anything about Jesus at this point in Jeremiah 31. It just said, but it's God saying, I'm going to do something so fresh, so new. Your ears are going to hear it and they're going to perk up and, and it's going to involve everybody. The good people, the bad people perceive, but oh, by the way, you're all bad people. All right. I hope this is making sense. So this promise clearly relates, now listen again to Feinberg on this, this promise, speaking of Jeremiah 31, relates to a new covenant and it's a prediction of radical change, radical change in God's economy of how he deals with humanity. Do you understand? This is so important. I love Feinberg on this. It is what? A prediction of radical change, new things in God's economy. So Jesus didn't just come teaching an interesting way to be more moral. Nobody was trying hard, harder to be more moral than the Pharisees. A total upheaval of the old system. And from the least to the greatest. Now let's go back. I want to I wanna run just, what was the lead up to this promise of a new covenant? 
We're just going to go back a few verses in Jeremiah 31, and I want you to see, again, this language. This is going to be new. This is going to be refreshing and vibrant and dynamic. Let's go back to verses 23 through 26 of Jeremiah 31, if you have your Bibles here this morning. Set up for yourself road marks, place for yourself guideposts, direct your mind to the highway. In other words, this is where we're going somewhere. We're not just staying inflexible and back in our old places. We're going to the highway, man. We're, we're going for it. By the way which you went, return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A, a woman will encompass a man. By the way, some people think that this refers to the virgin birth. I, I really don't think contextually we can make that case. I'm not gonna, for those who hold to that position, I'm going to deny it in all. But generally, it just means that there's going to be a new economy where even the weaker are going to be able to defend themselves uh, from an enemy. This is the direct con uh, con context of speaking to Israel. So again, it's, it's this picture of the least are going to be involved in this. That's what this means. And thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and its cities when I restore their fortunes. O abode of righteousness, O holy hill, and Judah and all its cities will dwell in it and the farmer and they will go about with flocks and satisfy the weary ones and refresh, refresh everyone who languishes. At this point, Jeremiah says, I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant. He got this beautiful, I can kind of see this pastoral kind of bucolic setting of peace and joy without enemies coming in and wiping out the weak. Now you can take this and, and spiritualize this and understand this as, a, as again a template for our whole minds. The new covenant, what he's seeing is something's coming that's gonna give us peace and even the weak are at peace and, and it's gonna be a new thing, it's gonna be refreshing. And then he goes in, I'm gonna make a new covenant and it's not gonna be like the law. Well, most of our folks, let me just tell you right now, most of the people who you will meet up and down on the streets, well, why don't you like, and now evangelical's a dirty word, you know? It's been politicized and every other thing, you evangelicals and this and that, and it's constantly, it's, it seems to be the one uh, whipping boy in all of the language that people use. It's an awful thing, you know? And, uh, and here you have these folks and, well, you know, it's terrible, it's, 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 it's awful, and yet, this is so refreshing. It's so new. I mean, we folks, we have to cling, cling to the word. And now we understand clearly that Jesus is in fact the word. So is God doing new things in your life? I'm going to begin to ask you that. And why would God want to constantly be doing new and fresh and vibrant things in your life? Well, I think a number of things. First of all, it keeps us dependent. Why? Well, we've got, it keeps us humble. We've got to keep listening to him. We've got to stay in relationship. It's a dynamic. It's being yoked. We're going somewhere. Again, we're going somewhere. We're not stuck in the past. When this is, we just get religion by rote. That's of what happened with the Pharisees. They'd become so inflexible. Uh, God just, God behaves this way. And we work so hard to put God in a box. Can you imagine the most massive force in all the cosmos? And we're going to try to get him down to a few principles and then put him in a box and say, this is how God operates and this is how, and, and then put him in a box. You don't think that God wants to do constantly something new and dynamic and fresh? And of course, then the question emerges is how do we know it's God? And I understand. And some people do a lot of things in the name of God, in the name of something fresh and new, and then it's clearly not God. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But Jesus is doing exactly that right now. He's picking fishermen and tax collectors. And what he's doing is he's choosing new wineskins. Why? Because he's about to pour in a radically new way of God dealing with humanity. God's economy is about to shift to a whole new covenant. Jeremiah had seen it. The prophets had seen it coming. And now Jesus is coming and saying, it's here. Bridegroom's right here. No, they're not fasting because something new is here. They'll fast after I'm gone, but there's a new marriage coming. And I'm going to be married to people who you perceive to be dirty laundry, the least. And I'm going to be married to people who, yeah, we're part of that maybe old, inflexible old guard. And, and, and yet 
We're going to bring everybody together and it's going to be called the kingdom, the kingdom of God. I'm going to take you now just to, as we start to wind this down, take you to a few places in the prophets. Well, they were always talking about new things. Isaiah 43, 19, behold, God speaking, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Rivers in the desert. This is, I'm, gonna, I'm doing something new. Habakkuk 1.5. Listen to what Habakkuk says. Now, the context here is him actually raising up the Babylonians to come in and punish Israel. So it's a new thing, but it's a new difficult thing. This is, this is the, but this is eventually going to produce life in them. When, you, when God chastens those he loves, the Bible says, and he's chastening Israel. And he says, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days you wouldn't believe it if you were told. <clears throat> in other words, yes, in this context, I'm raising up a fierce and impetuous people and they're going to come and they're going to wipe you out because I love you so much and you are running so far astray from me. And he called this a new thing. You're going to be astonished at it. Now, what's fascinating about this is that the apostle Paul is actually speaking in a synagogue in one of his missionary journeys. And he alludes to Habakkuk 1, but uses a whole different context. It's not about Babylonians. It's about a good thing, and it's the gospel. Verse 36, listen to what he, so Paul's preaching this. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, and he was laid among his fathers, and he underwent decay. I mean, David's dead. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. This is the gospel. Jesus has now ascended. He ascends in Acts chapter 1. Paul, is, he does an amazingly new thing in Paul. Who could imagine that God would take part of the old guard? Paul was the epicenter of the old guard, studied under Gamaliel. And, and he took the old guard, blinded him. And did a new thing, a fresh thing that no, none of his old peers, they couldn't understand what was going on. And they, they, now they're after him to kill him. God, in this case, took an old wineskin, blinded it, made him a fresh wineskin, then poured this new covenant into him. And he's preaching about it. He said, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. This is a whole new kind of covenant. Therefore, take heed so that the things spoken in the prophets may not come upon you. And then he quotes Habakkuk 1. Behold, you scoffers and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Let me ask you a question. Are you one of those people that, that there was a fresh move of the Spirit? Maybe something that he's going to use uniquely in Church of the Red Door, or maybe just in your life in a way that you say, well, we don't do things that way. This is different. We don't worship with music videos, and we don't go to these places, and we don't hang out at, you know, golf clubs and places, you know, ill repute like these places. We don't do these kinds of things. That's not what Christians do. And there was a wave of the Spirit, and he provoked you. Is God doing something in your life right now? where he wants to do something new, but you've been fighting him? And then again, the question is, how would you know? I mean, uh, these are good questions to ask. We need to be desirous, but we need to be cautious. But there's a principle here that we can see consistently through the Old and on into the New Testament. There is a principle. God loves to do fresh, new, exhilarating wonderful, life-giving things. You don't just get up and say, well, here's what I do in Christianity. I go in, I do my devotionals, I read, I go, I go to church on Sundays, I go to church on, on when I intend a uh, fellowship group and nothing ever changes. You just study the same old things. You never think about a new and vibrant, maybe mission, reaching people for Jesus, all these new things that would require a supernatural partnership with God where everything's new and he tells you to do something new and you do it and a fresh outpouring of the spirit. I mean, think about some of these things that have happened. Think about the late 60s with the Jesus movement. You don't think there were people like these hippies can't have anything to do with Jesus. Listen, they were out there, uh, the sex culture and everything and this uh, revolution, sexual revolution. And now some of them are talking about Jesus. We can't trust that. You don't think God used some of those new wineskins. Some of you are actually recipients of the Jesus Jesus movement. And now you may be in your 70s, 80s, whatever, and you were like, hey, I was, even 60s, 
I would say 60s and 70s, you were a recipient of things that God did something totally fresh. You know, the same people who were putting daisies in the end of these, these rifles and jumping around at Woodstock, half clothed or less. And how God could never do anything fresh through that. And yet the Jesus movement had a profound impact. Not only that, many Jewish men and women came to faith in Jesus through the Jesus movement. Would you have been one of those? God doesn't do that. He doesn't work with people like that. Those hippies, those crazies, that sexual revolution. He's not going to do anything with that. What if God were to do, begin to do something today? And let me just tell you, I have the hope. I know our country's struggling. I know that we have some dramatic moral failings in our country now and, and things that are celebrated now are things that God knows lead to struggle and not the flourishing of life. I mean, I know that with abortion and all the different things that go on, can I just tell you, God can do a new thing. If he can do something radical and new during the sexual revolution of the 60s and out of that come the Jesus movement, you don't think he can do a new thing today? And what might he be using you for in this process or our church or here in the valley or here in the United States? I mean, I, I'm always hoping, always believing that God has a pattern, a pattern of new things. We have to be constantly aware. Look, they're not departures. New things that God does are never departures from God's ways or his holiness. But they are invigorating and they are wonderful. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He said, he is not weary of the old. But he, meaning God, is not afraid of the new. He loves to do new things. Who, did he, who does God use as we close here? Who did, who did God use in your life? Was it maybe a new wineskin kind of a thing? Or did you come to faith through maybe an old line denomination that's been around for a hundred years? Maybe all the way back from John Wesley or, you know, uh, maybe you were Lutheran or Catholic or something, you know. Maybe God used part of what might be considered an older type of a wineskin. Or maybe he used a radically new wineskin. Yeah, I met a guy at a golf club, you know, and we were playing golf and he wasn't a pastor or anything. And he started talking to me about Jesus and, you know, and his name was Chris Herman or, you know, somebody like that maybe. And, 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 and then I had this relationship and, it, and he said, well, that's definitely a new wineskin. It's not a seminary trained guy. I mean, but he, yeah, that's, that's pretty new. I mean, I, who comes to Jesus on a golf course? Did you come through an old guard or was it kind of a new wineskin? Or maybe it was a blend of the two. True Jesus followership, folks, is amazingly, now catch this as we close, anchored in transcendent truths that have been understood for thousands and thousands of years. And yet it's daily, it's fresh, it's extraordinary. Walking with Jesus is wild, unexpected. And well, it's wonderful. I don't want it just, well, it's going to be the same thing that we did last year and the year before and the year before. It's just, you know, that's what Christianity is. It's just boring old rote, you know, you do this and this. I want God to be pouring out on us some fresh move of the Spirit. I want to see revival here in the Palm Springs area, Coachella Valley. I want to see it. I, I so desperately want to see people say, I'm so fascinated with Jesus. And I want to see from the least to the greatest. I want to see revival in the church that exists here in the valley. And I want to see revival in places, well, where people, you know, good Christians wouldn't go. Is he calling you to go to places where Jesus might have gone during his ministry, but you don't feel like you can go and hang around with dirty, in dirty places? Listen to his voice. Anchored in the past, fresh every day. Just remember that. If you don't remember anything else from this morning, anchored to the past. Jesus' holiness, God's holiness is never compromised. His beauty of his ways, there's a continuity and a consistency, but the expression of these old anchored truths can be new and dynamic and fresh and never tethered to just our old traditions that we get used to. We sing three, then we do this, and then we have that. And What if it's different? What if it's new? What if Church at the Red Door looks so different than anything you've ever experienced as you relate to either a Sunday service or the way we're out in the community or our small groups or something? What if it's so different that it's uncomfortable for some of you? 
Well, maybe it's a fresh wave of the Spirit, and maybe God's wanting to do something radically new. So the last thing I want to point you to, and again, this is Matthew 13. This is in the context of Jesus talking a lot about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is like, the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of he- or the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like, same thing, heaven, God, for our purposes. Kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he says this, don't miss this. Verse 52, and Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple, that's a learner of the kingdom of heaven, is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. I think it couldn't be more clear. We are anchored to the past, historical truth that Jesus was literally dead, buried, and resurrected, that he was the Lamb of God. These things never change. We are anchored to those old truths, but new in the sense of how might we express that in a culture that's so bored with just politicized evangelicalism and going to church and having the same looking thing every day and could there be new, fresh, vibrant demonstrations of what are transcendent truths? I, that's my hope for Church of the Red Door. So in closing, what does God want to do in your life today? What might he have been provoking in your own spirit, even this last week? Uh, this is the way God operates at times. Where all of a sudden you just, you just say, I think he's wanting me to do this, but I don't know that Christians can do this. Uh, clearly, he's not going to have you violate the holiness code of God's beauty. But it's not violating the holiness code to maybe invite someone over to dinner that's not part of your church or your small group. Maybe he's provoking in you. Well, you need to get out and be among people who don't have a relationship with me, who desperately, I might want to touch through your life. And it may be in a way that nobody's ever done it. You know, missionaries don't act that way. They don't say those kinds of things. They don't hang out with those people anchored to the past but refreshingly vibrantly new I hope this has impacted you I think Jesus is always looking for new wineskins not the rigid and the frigid but expandable that can grow that can understand he can pour in new beautiful ways and expressions of his love for humanity in your life Lord Jesus we thank you for this morning I pray Lord that you would sink this deep into our soul Let us not get stuck in our old ways. Oh, we're going to cling to those transcendent truths, Lord Jesus. But Lord, I just pray that you begin to give vision to individuals. Yes, to our church. You've already given us a fairly unique vision at Church at the Red Door, but that is a little bit new wineskin-ish. I mean, having an old broken down golf pro as a pastor and then others that, you know, CEOs and other people have come along. I mean, it's kind of new. It's not standard. So we're already in some ways a new wineskin, but Lord, individually now, Lord, that we would be fresh and expandable and be able to expand, never moving away from your holiness, but always expecting something gracious, something new, something vibrant as your spirit moves through our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you, church at the Red Door. Have a wonderful, glorious week. And God willing, we will see you right here in my office. Maybe soon we'll be gathering again, but see me here. I'll see you here next week in my office. Have a great week.